Listener Production. Ego is a massive part of any pursuit that involves ambition. And while Australian politics is based on team principles, all fall behind the leader and help the party, etc., it really gets fascinating when individual ambition and ego becomes involved. I'm Adam Peacock, and on Peacock Politics, I'm about to look into the subject of ministers. You know, the ones that have the important jobs behind the Prime Minister, Minister for Health, Minister for Home Affairs, Minister for Education, the Treasurer, which is Minister for Money. All up, there's about 40 ministry jobs for usually over 100 politicians. And that means about half are happy and half want to be happy. So without putting too fine a point on it, what I want to know is how much backstabbing and sucking up goes on in order to be happy. Labor Party politician Jason Clare has been a minister for about six different things in Parliament, like Minister of Defence Material, Home Affairs, Justice, Parliamentary Secretary for Employment, Cabinet Secretary, Cabinet Minister. He knows a lot, so that's why we've got him on. And Jason, what made you most happy in your time in Parliament? (laughs) Getting things done. You know, it is a tough job. And um, Paul Keating used to say that everyone in Parliament ends up going out in a box. You know, not, not too many people have their reputations enhanced. It's because it's the cut and thrust and the the opposition trying to tear you down. It's a it's a job where uh, lots of people fail and not many people succeed. Hmm. Why do you do it? Well, you do it because this is the place where you get a chance to change the country for the better if you get it right. And that contest between the government and the opposition trying to put together the, the sorts of things that make a country better We've all got examples of what we think make the country better, but let me give you, you know, a couple of examples like Medicare or superannuation. They're the things that don't happen unless you've got politicians working together to make them happen. And if you've got a minister and a prime minister, that's prepared to take it up and make it happen. Mm. So that's why people hopefully get involved. There's a lot of people who get involved for other reasons. <laughs> but if you do it for the right reasons, it can be very rewarding, even if at the end of the day you go out in the box. What I'm interested in then is before you get taken out in the box, how you get to that point of being a minister and, you know, being a minister for effective change and and wanting to do the things you want to and how we get to that point and what you have to navigate through to get there and climbing over people or asking nicely. How much is there that we don't see that there is to this subject of becoming a minister? I guess where you've got to start is, you know, how do you appoint ministers, right? It's different in Australia than it is, for example, in America. Ministers are uh, members of parliament in Australia, just like in the UK and New Zealand, Canada. So the ministers are picked from the politicians in the parliament. So a government is elected, they've got a majority in the lower house, and then the prime minister will pick the ministers in his or her cabinet. Now, in America, it's a bit different, where the president is elected and then they pick their ministers, they're called secretaries, but they're not, they're not in their parliament, they're not in their congress. Um, and uh, they may be politicians. They, they could be governors like premiers of other states or they could be senators that they pluck out of the Congress uh, or they could be subject matter experts. You know, um, mm. uh, Joe Biden's just appointed a defence secretary who's a, a former general. So it, there's different ways of, of putting a team together that's called a cabinet. And in the political system we've got, all the ministers are politicians in the parliament. So that means that for people like myself, you've got one job, which is being your local member for the 150,000 people you represent in the parliament. And then there's a smaller group of people who are lucky enough to be appointed ministers or shadow ministers that have got 
special responsibility for an area. Hmm. How does it all happen? You know, it all happens behind the scenes. And the two big parties do it differently. So if you think about it like sport, in the Labor Party, the party picks the team and the Prime Minister picks the positions. Yep. Whereas in the Liberal Party, the Prime Minister picks the team and the positions. Why is it different? Well, the Labor Party, going back over 100 years, has had rules that said all of the Labor politicians elect the front bench, the ministers. So if you've got 100 Labor MPs in the parliament, they all get together, meet, and they pick who their best 40 are or who they who they want to be on the front bench. Man, that would be an interesting vote sometimes. Yeah, and like so you're going to the point about you know how to win friends and influence people. That's <laughs> usually made up of a whole bunch of people from different parts of the country different backgrounds, different factions. You know, and you know, factions is one of those words you'll, you'll hear all the time. Both parties have got them, different groups of people have got different views. Now, once that team is picked, then the list is given to a Labor leader, whether they're the Prime Minister or the Opposition Leader, and they allocate the spots. This person's going to be the Minister for Foreign Affairs, this person's going to be the Treasurer, this person's going to be the Finance Minister, etc. Hmm. A different approach historically in the Liberal Party. They've always had the approach that the Prime Minister gets to pick the players and the positions. He's captain and selector. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Now, Labor Party changed the way we do this under Rudd and Gillard and mm. gave all the power to the Prime Minister, but now we've gone back to the old system, uh, which is about the party, the the caucus, the, the politicians themselves picking the top 40 and then giving that list to the PM. What works better? Oh, good question. I guess, you know, you can do it either way. If you do it the way we do it, it means that all power doesn't sit with the PM. And so um, I think arguably, certainly a lot of people would say, if the PM has the power to pick the people and pick the positions, then the ministers are likely to be, well, be more likely to to not rebuke the Prime Minister or speak up in Cabinet because they feel that their job is there only by virtue of the support of the Prime Minister. And so if you're appointed by another group, mm. you're more likely to say what you think, be more forthright, fight for the things that you believe in without worrying about losing your job. Mm. Interesting how it's so different but for the same result or the same desire. Do you find that with either way that you look at it, that you end up with the best people in the jobs that those best people should be or are there factors at play which perhaps mean that that's not the case? Yeah, it's in the interest of the Prime Minister to try and put their best players in the toughest positions. Uh, So what are the big jobs? You know, the two big jobs are always Treasurer and Foreign Minister. And so if you're a Prime Minister, you're thinking about who are are your best players? Hmm. Who are your best people? Who can do the toughest and hardest jobs? And being treasurer, running the economy, working out what's going to create more jobs and you know ensure people are paid more and that the economy is growing, uh, you, you want to give that to one of your, your, your better performers and somebody who's got expertise hmm. in the area. I made the point before that all the ministers are politicians. Often you're not an expert in this area. I thought as a kid... You know, surely the health minister's a doctor and the education minister's a teacher. Well, that's what and, I thought, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's not. Right? And as, as I learnt more about it as I, as I grew up, I realised your job is not necessarily to be the expert mm. but to know what, what's in the public interest. So you've got to learn fast. You've got to know what you're talking about really quickly, otherwise you get found out. Um, 
But if you're the PM, you want to make sure you're putting your best people in those positions. Mm. One of the things that I mentioned that in the Liberal Party, the PM gets to pick everybody. The only limit on that, of course, is that the Liberal Party is always in coalition with the National Party, smaller party, but they are entitled under their agreement to a certain number of ministers and those ministers are uh, selected by them. So the Prime Minister will get a list. That's like a quota. Yeah, that's exactly right. And how does that play out? Is it kind of, again, putting a a handbrake on things because you're you're having to leave out perhaps some of your best players or you're getting players that that you don't know? So, so for example, it means, you know, if there's a cabinet of 20 people, you might have 13 or 14 Liberal MPs and six or seven National MPs. means the PM can't put all of his team there, but he's not Prime Minister without the National Party, so they've done a deal. Hmm. And uh, that gives them a majority in the parliament. He doesn't get to pick who the deputy prime minister is. So it can often lead to some pretty interesting stouches. You remember the fight between Malcolm Turnbull and Barnaby Joyce over the bonk ban. Um, The National Party picked their leader and the prime minister, uh, in the the case of the Liberal Party, needs to work with them. How does it work then? So the the actual playing out behind the scenes of... I don't know. Am I imagining things here that people are climbing over each other to get certain gigs or is it all nicey-nicey and everyone's beholden to what the overall picture is for the the party and what you want to try and achieve and everyone falls into line that way? Surely ego and personality come into play a fair bit. Oh, sure. Yeah, and, you know, there's there's people who are in positions who want to stay in them and there's other people who want want to take on a more senior role. Everybody that gets elected wants to do as big a job as they possibly can. I guess let's think about a, an election happens, one side wins, the other side loses. The new prime minister's got to pick a new team. And so he or she will talk to the senior people around them, their deputy, their other senior people, and they'll say to them, what, what portfolio do you want? They'll probably talk to them and work out what jobs the, the senior people in the team really want and make sure that uh, he or she can give them the jobs that that he, he thinks they can do best. Um, but he'll, he'll also be thinking about who are the other people that might be in the team and what sort of portfolio should they get based on um, what their skills are, hmm. what they think they'd do well. Um, and then ultimately what happens is the Prime Minister rings everybody and says, this is the job that I'm asking you to do. You know, we, Either you're doing it or would you be happy to do it, right? So, Does anyone ever turn them down? I doubt it. Um, pretty stupid play. Yeah, you know, to, to be given an opportunity to do this is is pretty awesome, right? Yeah. But um, let, let me give you an example of how it happened uh, for me. Uh, so I got elected in 2007. In 2010, Julia Gillard won, but it was a hung parliament. And for two weeks, we didn't know whether Julia Gillard would be the PM or, or Tony Abbott hmm. would be the PM. In the end, uh, Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott sided with Julia Gillard and so Julia Gillard was able to form uh, a government. Then she had to decide, okay, well, who are going to be my ministers? Now, for a while there, uh, there was people thinking that Rob Oakeshott might be invited to become a minister as part of that government. Even though not part of the Labor Party. That's right. And I think he he made it clear in the media, he said he wouldn't want to do that. So that meant that one extra person in the Labor Party would be able to get a job in the ministry. Um, now that the most junior minister appointed in that government was me. Oh, yeah. So it might be that- What de- was the gig that you got? Defence material. 
defense material. Yeah, or to, you know, to to be fancy about it, defense material, <laughs> which is just a fancy way of talking about defense equipment, everything from planes to submarines to tanks. Were you a guy that played, um, you know, armies with the toys as a seven-year-old in oh, the, the you front know, room? On the Commodore 64, I was pretty awesome. <laughs> but, but that was about the extent of the knowledge. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at Yumcha in Cabramatta with my wife and family and I get a phone call and it says Julia Gillard on the phone. And you know what it's about because you know that she's working out what the, the ministry is going to look like. So I race outside and I'm sitting in the car park and I get told that um, I want to appoint you as the Minister for Defence Material and, um, you know, once you realise that it's not a dream and you're actually you're being told that you, you're being asked to do this, you um, you start Googling what defence material is. And then... You know what? I can relate to that because in my other world as a as a sports presenter, I was once called by the boss and the boss goes, oh, we, we've got a, a gig for you and it's in a couple of weeks. I really want you to do this. It's, it's, it's important. It's something a bit different. I'm like, okay, what's this? What's this? Am I getting on a plane? I'm going overseas or something. It's the jousting. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. No worries. Hang up the phone. Bang. Google. Jousting. What's what? jousting? <laughs> what? it work? So it was the same for you when you got this yeah, uh, ministry yeah. gig. And, you know, it's a, someone described it to me as sort of like drinking from a fire hose. You know, you, you've got to try and <laughs> swallow things as quickly as you can, learn as, yeah. as quickly as you can. And in defence, you, you're full of people who have worked in that industry for, you know, some, some of them 10, 20 years it's got more acronyms than any other place in Australia. And they don't suffer fools either. No, no. These are, these are smart, hard people. And, uh, and so you've got to learn quickly. Hmm. And I guess I learned in that job that being a minister's, you know, it's not the same, but it's a little bit like being, the, being on the board of a company rather than being the CEO. So there are people who are in charge of, of the day-to-day making things happen, making sure that the Army and the Navy and the Air Force work and that they've got everything they need. And then above that, you've got the minister that sets in place the government policy and tries to make sure that they're implementing everything that the government wants to happen. It's a, mm. it's a little bit similar to the way in which a chairman of a company mm. is representing the, the shareholders, the owners of the company. You know, we represent as ministers the taxpayers, Australian voters, and, and in the case of a company, that, that chairman is trying to make sure that the CEO and the management of the company are doing what the board is setting out for them to do. The right decisions being made. Just back to actually getting a gig in a ministry, after, say, an election, and then the Prime Minister, he or she needs to form that ministry, how quickly do you ping the message to say, hey, well done, congratulations, um, hope you're well, the ulterior motive being, please keep me in mind because I'd like to do something <laughs> important. Yeah, look, I've never been the sort of person to do that. But there are people that do I that? guess there are. And, and as I said, I think it, it depends a little bit on how senior you are. Hmm. So, you know, I, I, was, I thought myself fortunate to even be considered uh, for a ministry. That was the time, remember, um, I, I said that there was a period there where the Labor Party changed the rules so the Prime Minister picked the whole team and it wasn't picked by the, the, the party itself. And so that was a decision purely for Julia Gillard to make. And um, I, I was just surprised and excited that I got the phone call. Mm. But people that were more senior would have been working with her on what that ministry should look like. Her advisors as well as her. Her advisors. Close but allies it would have been, Yeah, you know, pe- people like um, Wayne Swan, for example, who was the treasurer, would have been sitting down with her and other people around her thinking, okay, what should, um, what should the team look like? Yeah. What positions should people play? With all the 
ins and outs that have gone on with leadership, both Labor Party and Coalition or Liberal Party in the past decade or so, a little bit more now. How much does a ministry get chosen on the basis of this person is an ally of this particular leader as opposed to the one that's just been disposed inside that party? Yeah, yeah I, I guess that's that's a good question. It's about, you know, keeping your friends close and your enemies closer, right? You know, when there those big changes happen, often you'll see some ministers will leave the cabinet because they'll choose not to serve with a, a different prime minister. Different prime ministers have different approaches to this too. I was thinking uh, about this. Tony Abbott, for example, appointed Malcolm Turnbull to be in his ministry and he knew that Malcolm Turnbull was a threat and probably thought it was better to have him closer closer mm. in the tent. Um, that didn't necessarily work out. Uh, but Malcolm Turnbull did the opposite. So when Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister, he was under a lot of pressure to put Tony Abbott in his ministry uh, and he chose to do do the opposite. Put him in the back seat. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. if the purpose of them doing both of those things was to try to stop a competitor from undermining them, it, it didn't work. It's weird, isn't it, that you'd think everyone would be on the same page, but from what I've learned in all of this, and this is a, a factor in it all because it ends up being who you see doing these important jobs behind the Prime Minister, that the politics within a political party are as, almost as important sometimes as opposition v yeah, yeah, that's government. exactly right. But, uh, you know, and this is true for both parties, unless everybody, particularly the senior people, are all pulling in the one direction, mm. then the whole show is undermined. People lose confidence when they turn on the TV and they see politicians fighting, particularly if they're politicians in the same party that are fighting. You know, just to use the sporting analogy again, can you imagine, you know, how, how successful is a sporting team if you've got some players on the team that are effectively helping mm. the other side? The succession planning in terms of, making sure that your party has the right people to possibly take over one day if the, the main person, the head honcho, steps down or gets voted out or, you know, it happens, volatile nature of politics. Does that happen on a considered basis as in you can start as a junior minister and then climb your way up to one yeah. of the really important jobs with an eye that the people behind the scenes are seeing this person as someone who can one day lead the party? Probably not. No, you know, I, I just, I don't think there's enough professional development in politics um, at all. You know, when you become a member of parliament, there's very little training to tell you what to do or how to do it, which is mm. why some pollies stuff things up. Uh, there's there's not a lot of professional development to teach you how to be a minister, either. Let let alone trying to identify who's going to be the next leader. We probably, and this is again, it's not it's not Labor Party or Liberal Party. It's all of us. Uh, there's there's not a lot of work done to identify people who could become good members of parliament and good ministers if they choose to mm. to 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 run for parliament. It's often based on the individual having the ambition or desire to do it themselves. What makes a good minister? Have you got examples of someone who was really certain? You can say yourself here if you want to pump yourself up. <laughs> You've been a minister for all those things that I mentioned in the I think intro. that's on everybody's lips there thinking that. <laughs> um, like what makes in your eyes, and if you want to give examples and better still if you want to name those people, what has made certain people really good ministers yeah. for effectiveness? Let me give you two um, from both sides of politics. From the Labor side, Paul Keating as Treasurer. He became Prime Minister, but before that he was a minister for a very long time. 
there's a person who shows that as a minister you can change the country. I talked about people wanting to go into politics and become ministers because of the change you can make. There's the the best example I can think of, somebody who had a big job who, you know, didn't just sign letters and, Mm. and, you know, manage, he made. The, The country we live in today has the fingerprints of Paul Keating all over it, you know, whether it's the floating the dollar, the cutting of tariffs, the big industry reform. Um, you know, Paul Keating created the economy that we live in. A lot of the jobs that people have are because of the, the sorts of things that Keating did. Mm. So whether we know it or not, those things that, that, that he did as treasurer in the 1980s are still having an impact on our lives today. So there's, mm. a, there's a good example of how a minister can, can make a difference. The, the other one that comes to mind is Tim Fisher, who was the Deputy Prime Minister to John Howard. And I guess he did... Um, what I'm about to talk about as a leader, he was the leader of the National Party, but it is a good example of the importance of standing up for the things that you believe in and doing things that are tough, that seem hard. Um, but if you if you stand by your convictions, you can well, you can do extraordinary things. And that's what he did on gun laws. So remember Port Arthur, we were a lot mm. younger then, but we can all remember being at home watching the telly and seeing, you know, that massacre unfold. One of the greatest things John Howard did was to react really quickly in response to that and say, okay, we're going to toughen up Australia's gun laws, take semi-automatic weapons out of the hands of people who don't need them and we're going to get all the states to introduce all these laws to make it happen. Mm. That wasn't easy for him to do. It was even harder for Tim Fisher, who's the leader of the National Party, the you know, effectively the the party of farmers to say, hand back your guns. And he'd mm. stand in front of a lot of angry farmers and say, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. Didn't win him any friends. But there are people that are alive today because he did that. Mm. And so that's another example of how, how a minister, if, they, if, you know, if they're prepared to fight for what they believe in, if they're prepared to do things that aren't popular, but they think are right, mm. then... They can, they can make a better country, they can save a life, they can create a job. So even more so with being a minister as opposed to just being, your, you know, your local MP or a, or a senator for the area that you're from, you need to really stay in tune with what's going on around you, not just in your own area but the whole of the joint because how people live in inner city Sydney is a little bit different to how they live in northwest Western Australia. Yeah, that's right. And, and so I guess now it depends on what's your job as a minister. If you're the Minister for Health, for example, you're going to spend a lot of time talking to doctors, talking to nurses, talking to health professionals, talking to health academics, health economists, trying to understand how the whole health system works. Mm. It's not a good idea, though, for a minister to spend all their time sitting in their office. Yeah, You don't learn as much, you know, reading a brief or talking to experts in the office as you do when you get out and about talking to people where they work. Real world experience. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a mixture of that. You know, if, if, a, if a minister is good at their job, they're normally up pretty early in the morning. They're trying to work out what's in the media that they need to respond to or to address. They've, they've got meetings with the sort of people I just talked about. Um, they'll be in cabinet meetings for hours and cabinet committee meetings uh, but they've also got to make make sure that they don't just lock themselves in Canberra mm. and th- they've got to get out and about into the areas that they're responsible for and make sure that they're talking to the people that are affected by their their decisions. 
what do you get as a minister to, to help you along those lines? Um, a bigger pay packet, more staff, a yeah, nice car, yeah. anything like that? Um, well, you get you get more pay. Yep. Uh, you do get a pay rise. Uh, you get more staff um, and you get more work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but you need those staff. I mean, it's nice to get the pay, but you need those staff. Otherwise, it's it becomes almost impossible. Yeah, well, you've got – you need staff to do a whole bunch of different things. Uh, I guess there's three types of staff in a minister's office. There's the uh, the policy staff who are responsible for working with you and the department that you run, uh, setting out the sort of policies that you want to develop and implement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got media staff who are responsible for um, responding to inquiries from the media and, you know, organising interviews that you do, for example. Uh, and then you'll have administrative staff that are responsible for coordinating all that paperwork that moves in and out of the office. And you'll sometimes have um, people that are not employed by you, but they're employed by the department who sit in your office that that help you with that as well. You know, mm. my sort of been a while since I've been a minister, but I can still still got flashbacks of those in trays and those suitcases that you take home at night. There's there's plenty of that, and part of the challenge is, yes, you get swamped by paperwork, but if all you're doing is signing letters and reading briefs, you're not going to do a good job. You've actually got to take a step back and think about what do I want to achieve here? What have I, what have I got to try to do here? I asked what makes a, a good minister. What about a bad one? Yeah, go on. Give us an example. Don't have to name names if you don't want it. Oh, no, no. I'm happy to name names. Oh, good. <laughs> Get into it. So I've got an example here of the shortest ministerial career in Australian political history. Uh, it's a bloke called Glenn Scheel who, uh, after Malcolm Fraser was elected or re-elected in 1977, he appointed him as Minister for Veterans Affairs. So Liberal Party. Liberal Party. How do I know this was going to be someone from the Liberal Party? <laughs> well, I can give you another one from the Labor one as well if you like. <laughs> yeah, good. Balance. Um, but this one, this one is a beauty just because of this. So he's announced uh, that he's been appointed as a minister on the 19th of December. He gets sworn in on the 20th of December and then he gets sacked at lunchtime on the 21st of December. So he lasted all of two days. What on earth did he do? For breakfast on the 21st of December. Well, I don't know if it was breakfast, but he did a radio interview with the ABC. (laughs) What happened? And this might seem like ancient history as we're talking about this now, but uh, in that interview he talked about how great apartheid was in South Africa and how it might be suitable to come to Australia. Um, Now, (laughs) Malcolm (laughs) Malcolm (laughs) Fraser (laughs) was a well-known opponent of apartheid, both as Prime Minister and afterwards, uh, and certainly the government was as well. He wasn't prepared to tolerate that and sacked him. And and, and as as I think about this, I I think what happened, so when you're a a minister, you get the fancy title, the Honourable, and you keep it after you're no longer a minister. Oh, really? Yeah. This fellow, I think, is the only person who had that taken off him. (laughs) <laughs> Malcolm Fraser was that angry with him that not only did he sack him after two days, but he he pulled his fancy title off him as well. He should have kept it, but just put DIS in front of it. <laughs> Add three letters. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that's a... Got another? Well, the other one I was thinking of, and, and this is more just an example of right person for the right portfolio, was um, the Labor Treasurer, Jim Cairns. Mm. So I talked about Paul Keating, an, an example of somebody that... If they've, you know, if they've got the skills to do the job, they can make a real positive difference. Jim Cairns was appointed treasurer in the middle of the Whitlam government and and did a bad job. 
Um, he wasn't fit for the job at all. There were the loans affairs and all of the problems that... Um, Is that the government that ended up getting sacked by the Governor-General? Yeah, that's right. He'd been sacked as Treasurer before then and they, they Whitlam put another Treasurer in. Um, but there's, you know, just an example of a bloke who was a good guy, honest guy, but bad at the job. So is it a lack of organisation which will really, really hinder you if you get a ministry job and it doesn't quite go to plan? Look, as I said earlier, you want to make sure that the leader, the Prime Minister or the opposition leader, appoints the right people to the right jobs. If you get that wrong, then that doesn't help. Hmm. And organisation is critical and, and teamwork as well. You know, if, if people are pulling in all different directions, if you've got some bloke saying that he thinks apartheid's a good idea, for example, or wanting to put in place a policy that's totally opposite of what the rest of the team want to do, then you're going to achieve very little. Does a bit of climbing go on, like career climbing behind the scenes, or does it all kind of get exposed eventually, that type of personality so that, you know, you'll get called out yeah, on it Yeah, quickly. I think that's right. Yeah, you know, if... if if people are trying to white in and undermine their colleagues, then that gets found out pretty quickly. The only other thing I'd say is that, you know, government is is hard. Ministers' shelf life is pretty short. And ministers will often stay in, in their jobs for a relatively short period of time. Why is that? So, well, it's either because they they make a mistake, they fail in their job, they lose the confidence of the Prime Minister or they get worn out and they choose to leave. And so as, as I've sat in opposition for the last six or seven years, uh, you know, I've noticed that the number of ministers churning through on the government side has been enormous, just, you know, people going for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, whereas in, in opposition, it seems to be more stable. Seems pretty easy to be got at if you stuff up. Oh, yeah. Too easy? Like, shouldn't there be a bit more credit given that everyone makes mistakes, that theory? Yeah, that's true. Uh, and and everyone makes mistakes. It's a difference between, you know, making a, a simple mistake and making a very serious mistake that, you know, might, for example, involve the misuse of taxpayers' money. Hmm. You know, you're responsible for billions of dollars. If you're using it for the wrong purpose, then that's a mistake that deserves your job, right? Much earlier, you said how you get... The promotion, if you like, you told that story at Yumshar of, of you getting yeah. to call Julia Gillard calling you. Uh, flip side, how do you get demoted? How do you find out? <laughs> well, sometimes you read it in the newspaper. Awesome. Yeah. You're taking a pay cut. Here it is, right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes you find out about it in question time. There's often a question that oppositions will ask governments that do you still have confidence in the minister? And the prime minister's response is always yes. And then there's a new across the chamber because you mean, well, how long is that going to last for? <laughs> Um, and, and that, that, the, the heat of question time, um, and on a parliamentary day, you can expect that, that every minister's sitting at their desk contemplating the, the hardest question that the opposition could ask them. And, um, they, they won't get much work done between one o'clock and two o'clock leading up to question time because they're, they're getting paranoid about whether today is the day that they're going to get 10 questions in a row. And if that day comes, that's a very difficult day. You know, when the heat is on you, uh, you better have the answers. Otherwise? Otherwise you can lose your job. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I talked about what the job of a prime minister is, what the job of a minister is. Ministers have got real substantial things they've got to try and do, but are often judged based on their ability to answer a question on TV or a question in parliament. And so that's part of the job too. If you look like you don't know what you're doing, then 
the Prime Minister will lose confidence in you pretty quick, but the general public will as well. I was thinking about a case recently where a minister was asked how many people had died in aged care during the, the COVID pandemic. Minister didn't know the answer. Now, they'll have lots of numbers going through their head, but if you get asked a simple question like that and you don't know the answer, then you're in trouble. I remember in the uh, in the Keating government, the treasurer was asked a simple question like that, wanted to know what, what the certain statistic was, didn't have the answer, didn't last much longer. Being in opposition, is that any different in terms of, you know, there's a shadow cabinet, so there's a shadow ministry. You're yeah. in direct opposition to the minister in the government of that particular topic. Yeah. Is it the same machinations about falling into line and getting chosen for those jobs? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much the same. You're appointed to a job to watch the minister, try and keep them honest, as well as develop up the alternate policies that we would take to an election if, if we were to win. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly the same. It's almost like a, an alternative government ready to govern if, if an election's held and we, we're successful. Well, Jason Clare, if there's one thing I've learned in this particular uh, chat, it's the fact that I have to call you the Honourable <laughs> Jason Clare, given that you have been a minister and one day might be again. And I thank you for your time on Peacock Politics. <laughs> Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, producer Tina Matilov, sound production by Darcy Thompson. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. Listener.